0: Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 39. Now one truth of basketball training that I adhere to with my athletes is the principle of threshold. If we stress an athlete too much, we risk injury and overtraining. If we don't stress an athlete enough, we waste time that could be used to get better at basketball. While understanding the principle of threshold is simple, practicing it is a little more complicated. We can find a player's threshold by doing assessments that don't require any expensive equipment like 3D maps, conditioning tests, or even subjective questionnaires. And we can also use technology like GPS heart rate monitors, and force plates. With so many options out there, I thought I'd pick the brain of one of my buddies who has access to not only basketball-specific technology, but also a large staff of strength coaches to mine the data. Bryce Dobb is currently the men's basketball director of strength and performance at the University of Oklahoma, but he's also worked with the Sonics, University of Oregon men's basketball, and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And one fun fact about him is that his dad Dwight was the Director of Athletic Performance in the NBA for 18 seasons, earning Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year in 2009. So Bryce has grown up and been around the game his entire life. Today he's going to share six different technologies that he uses with this team on a weekly basis, as well as some inexpensive options to monitor your players. Here's Bryce Dobb. Bryce, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing?
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited to have you here because you have a really unique plight. You were a basketball player first, growing up in a basketball family. I'd love to have you share your story about how you got to be a basketball strength coach.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So I guess it kind of all started, like you mentioned, I played basketball growing up. I played college basketball at Central Washington up there in the Northwest, which wasn't too far from home growing up in the greater Seattle area. played multiple sports in high school, but then I knew that basketball was my niche and I uh, went to Central Washington and enjoyed my time there. And then when I got done playing, I knew I wanted to kind of stay in basketball. At the time, my dad was a performance coach for the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, he had grown up as a, as a coach and had that profession for many years and was in the college levels and the professional levels for many years before retiring uh, not too long ago. So I knew that I wanted to be involved in sport just growing up in sport and having that be kind of a part of our household throughout my whole life. And so... Um, when i got done playing it kind of got to the point where it was do i continue to try and play i knew i wasn't probably good enough to play anywhere in the united states and and overseas probably would have been kind of chasing a pipe dream for quite a few years not making very much money and so in lieu of doing that i decided to kind of get my career started i was able to stay in basketball state in the university that i graduated from and start a graduate assistantship uh, that was available to me at uh, central washington and so I went right from playing and kind of progressed right into a graduate assistant role there for strength and conditioning. And it was a small Division II college, so there wasn't a full-time staff for that area within the athletic department. So it was a really good opportunity for me, kind of a sink or swim scenario of of be thrown in the fire and and have to manage quite a few teams. Uh, There was myself and another graduate assistant at the time. And between the two of us, without having too much mentorship to start with, other than my father, who was in the profession, obviously. Uh, we, we were in charge of all the teams at the school. And so it went from kind of just transitioned pretty smoothly from an athletic playing career to being involved in the sport that I love, but more on the performance side. Well, let's go
0: back to your playing days. What's it like having a dad that's an NBA strength coach? First, you must have just loved being around the guys and being able to go to the games, knowing that your dad's behind the scenes. But also, how did that help you athletically? You know, How did that help your mindset on the court?
1: One thing that people often ask me is is how was your experience growing up in that profession now that you're in that profession? Because one of the knocks quite often is, is the time commitment and the travel that is associated with being involved in sport, whether it's sport performance or whether it's one of the sport coaches. Uh, we all know that that field in general oftentimes has quite a taxing schedule. So my typical response to that is I didn't really even notice it. And not that I didn't notice my dad being gone, but I was just so happy that he was in that profession and I got to experience the the perks that came along with it of, of going to work with him or being around the team and being around the players. So it was being a teenage boy. It was, it was awesome. It was, it was something that I was probably even arrogant about in front of my friends because I thought it was so cool um, looking back. And so I never really looked at it as a, as a negative or, or some of the things now as a father and a parent in this profession I sometimes think about or worry about I didn't really think about that as I was growing up because I was just too too happy to be around it all. Um, and I think you know, it probably helped me just being exposed to it at a really high level, basketball at a really high level, helped just shape and continue to foster a passion for the sport. You know, I think I think training has changed drastically from thirty years ago compared to where it is now. And so I think, You know, to say that I was training at a high level or doing all the perfect things, I don't think that that would be accurate. But I think that's one of the cool things about sport performance is it's evolving pretty rapidly. And uh, so looking back, I think it definitely helped me as a player, Um, exposed me to some good things, exposed me to a culture and and different levels of playing. But um, I don't know if it optimized my athletic potential. I hope it did. But I, you know, I just, I, I feel like it, more than anything, fostered an environment for me to be successful.
0: What was your dad like in the garage with you, making you do squat jumps and working on your sprinting form, or did he leave you alone?
1: No, we were definitely training all the time <laughs> and it was it was um, it was more probably driven for me because i I would see those guys and look up to those athletes and so it would be probably more me always asking, "Can we do this? Can we do that? Can I try this um, when we get home? can we do more you know I, I think back even to the, his days in college where I would go to work with him during the summers and do the conditioning on the side of the field with the guys just because I thought it was the coolest thing to do. And so there was probably, as I grew up and and closer to the teenage years, I'm sure there was a little bit more pulling teeth and trying to convince me to do some things. But growing up as a, as a young adolescent, I just, I, I thought it was the coolest thing. So I'm sure I was bugging him to keep working with me day in and day out.
0: And now you have two young daughters. How are you going to be able to flip the script on that? when your daughters are into basketball hopefully they're into some kind of sport or something like that are you yeah. going to be out there working with them or are you going to let them find their own path
1: yeah i would love that i would love to be a part of their journey and uh, they're pretty young still and so they're they're just getting involved in sport in general so it's the soccer the basketball my wife is a college volleyball player and so i'm sure they they'll they'll find interest in that at some point. But right now we're just we're happy that they're active and, and running around like crazy. And so I would love for them to to take a passion or take a take a liking to my sport or, or the sport I played or even the sport that my wife played. And so I look forward to that time, but I also am trying to be very conscious. I think in this day and age there's a lot of a lot of parents that are that are pushing, you know, maybe maybe a little bit too hard in some areas. And so I just want to make sure that they enjoy it as much as I did and, and not try to be too overbearing.
0: But now you're the Men's Basketball Director of Strength and Performance for the University of Oklahoma. But this isn't the first time you work with high-level basketball teams. So can you tell us a little bit more about the programs you worked with before coming to
1: Oklahoma? Yeah, so as I was doing my graduate school, I worked as an intern during the summer for the Sonics when my dad was still um, on staff there. And so I would drive back and forth about two hours between school and where my parents lived or where where the facility was and be an intern for them for the summer. So I started out working for the Sonics as an intern during my graduate school summers. And then that kind of led to a full-time position. As soon as I finished grad school, the director of Overtop of Performance and Medical, Donnie Strack, called me and, and, and asked if I would like to join their team full-time. The Thunder had since moved. And so I moved to Oklahoma as a, an assistant on that performance staff. And, and that was my first time leaving the Northwest after being there for quite a while. And then it was uh, it was also an opportunity where I had a co-responsibility with their developmental team as well. So I've got to take everything that I learned and helped with with the NBA team and then implement it myself with the development team. So at that time, it was the D League and now it's the G League. But there was a team that was about two hours away from where the NBA team was. And so I would, again, be back and forth helping out with both teams and, and trying to facilitate what I learned and, and understood with that developmental roster. After I was with the, uh, the Thunder for 18 months-ish, then I got a job full-time with the University of Oregon on Dana Altman's staff. And so I moved back to the Northwest, which made my wife happy and, and we were close to home for her. And so uh, I worked for the University of Oregon for four years with uh, that staff and had an unbelievable experience there, high-level program, back close to home, West Coast. So it was great for us. And uh, we stayed there for four years until we got a call from Oklahoma. And that was an opportunity for me really to expand and develop my role, have more of a managerial role, have a full staff underneath of me. And so I still was working with men's basketball. But here at Oklahoma, I have the ability to create a little bit more of a setting, a little bit more of a a performance staff than I did at the University of uh, Oregon. And so that was kind of really appealing to me. So We ended up moving back to Oklahoma for a second time, which we never would have thought would have happened. And and now here we are five years later and looking forward to the the future here. That had to have been crazy
0: being a basketball performance coach and working with guys like Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. What kind of basketball athletes are these guys?
1: You know, I grew up around it. And so I didn't really realize how extreme those athletes are. And even with working with those athletes and then working with the development athletes, there's still a bit of a discrepancy between the levels of athletes. The Russell Westbrooks were there at the time. The Serge Ibaka's were there at the time. James Harden, um, Kevin Durant. So those type of athletes are just so much substantially different than even just a tiny level down with the development league. And so at first I took it for, for granted because I didn't really realize it until I could start to compare the two. And now that I can compare the two or even look back at the difference between that and some of the some of the athletes I have here at college, it's quite substantial. I used to catch myself just kind of watching and staring uh, every so often and just marvel at their ability to do things and to, to pick things up on the fly and to be able to learn new new movements or learn ways to to use their body and to move. It was remarkable looking back and and I was probably privy to a few of the more extreme athletes in the NBA even with Russell and, and some of those guys. and so yeah, it, it, I definitely can recall numerous times where I would just kind of sit in awe and watch them perform on the on the court or in the or in the weight room and just take it in as as wow this this is not how you and I operate <laughs> and um, so it was it was great. It was really fun to be able to see that at a high level but I think also too that then kind of shaped my ability to prescribe training and and be able to understand the drastic differences with athletes even within the same level in the NBA or even in college you have a huge discrepancy from the top to the bottom because our sport is so centered around sports skill and being efficient at, at, at basketball skill it lends the ability to have really really good athletes or not-so-good athletes that are very, very skill-driven. And then being able to train those two different groups really is significantly different. And so I think it helped shape now how I train and how I um, implement stuff with our athletes based upon the drastic differences that there is.
0: Well, that's a great segue into what I wanted to chat about today, because I wanted to dig into the marriage between science and coaching when monitoring players. And you've had the advantage of working in a lot of different settings with access to equipment, that most strength coaches only get to demo. So first off, why is it valuable to monitor players?
1: You're spot on. I've been very fortunate, the places that I've been to, to kind of be exposed to not only the resources that those teams have, but then the practitioners that are on their staffs to be able to learn from. To your question, I think, it's, I think the monitoring of the athlete is, is a very broad scope and a broad term. But I think in my mind, that refers to us gaining a better understanding and gaining feedback from the athlete to best prescribe programming moving forward. And that could be on many fronts. It could be it could be rehab. It could be corrective deficiency um, strategies. It could be training. It could be recovery. And so, to me, monitoring is so important because it's it's this system of um, gaining feedback based upon what's going on, either objectively or subjectively, and then applying that feedback to improve performance on the back end. So I think that that in a nutshell is the reason why we're seeing better athletes and the reason why we're seeing better programs that are at managing and in, in, in helping either injuries or, or performance is because we're able to get feedback now um, that we couldn't get 20, 30 years ago. And so I think that that has lent itself to us being better practitioners and being able to prescribe um maybe more specifically to each athlete.
0: So can you take us through a typical week? And I want to go through a list of some of the objective things that you're measuring to monitor players.
1: Here at Oklahoma, we try to be specific with what we're with what we're using, and we use a few different systems. During practice, we'll use a load monitoring system. Uh, the one that we use is catapult. And so we'll use that to be able to track how much workload our players have throughout the practice. If you think about basketball, I'm I'm sure there's plenty of people out there familiar with catapult, but basketball is a nonlinear sport. And so if we're just out running a mile, we know how much they do with the mile um, based upon the distance. And then we can quantify how hard it was or the intensity of of that exercise based upon time. With a nonlinear sport like basketball, it's really hard to quantify how much work they're doing on the court. And so catapult essentially helps us do that. And we can break it down into each, each athlete as well to better understand not only what The team goes through during a practice or a training session but what each individual goes through because there could be discrepancies between uh, position or between high minute guys or rotational guys and 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 walk-ons or non-rotational guys and so just understanding uh better getting a better snapshot of what they endure throughout the course of the training session or practice really helps us then either prescribe or limit what we're doing in the future Um, so we'll use that system called catapult and then we'll couple it with a heart rate monitoring system in order to see what the value is, not just the mechanical from catapult, but from the internal load for these athletes. So the stressors on the heart, the lungs, and the internal load that the athlete is accruing from the training session. You can tell us a lot of things. You can tell us if they're in shape, if they're fatigued, if they're doing well, if they're handling the stressors. So having those two systems paired together really gives us a, a complete picture of what's going on because How the athlete interprets the workload is as or more important than the workload itself. And so us being able to know what they're doing and know how challenging that is for them is really valuable when we think about prescribing future and whether it's return to play or whether it's future practices. Um, But then also too, we can use that to change or edit or modify training sessions in the weight room that we have a little bit more control over that aren't dependent upon the the head coach or the assistant coaches. So those two systems we use during all of our practices, we also use force plates in our weight room, and that helps us get a neuromuscular response to either the training or to a certain stimulus that they've been exposed to. And so that's stuff that we use weekly as well. And then in the basketball realm, there's all sorts of things. We use tracker That's a system that essentially collects all the stats. That's more for our basketball side of things. But we can hopefully, as we go trend in the future, we can use those basketball metrics And couple them with performance metrics to start to see what really matters for basketball performance. Because we know that these things probably matter for physical performance and their ability to jump high, run fast, or cut. The challenging part is then linking that to, does that affect their jump shot? Does that affect them down the stretch when they need to perform on the court in a basketball-type activity? And that linkage is is kind of like the holy grail of, if we can understand that combination, then we're going to be really affecting the sport in the future. So going back to
0: the catapult and the first beat, are they wearing these every time they step on the court? And do they have two wearables that they have or can they be combined into one?
1: Currently, we use two wearables. I'm sure in our conversations with these vendors and these companies that there is pressure to have compatibility between some of them. And some of the systems are compatible. The reason we chose those two specifically is because in the vetting process, those are what we thought would be most valuable for us. It doesn't mean that that would be applicable to Gonzaga or to Texas or to other schools. But when we start asking the questions that we need to find answers to, those were the ones that we felt would provide those answers. And so they do wear two wearables. they were wear just a heart rate belt around their chest area. And then the catapult just has a small sensor that goes into the back of their compression garment, their upper, upper body compression garment. So really non-invasive. It doesn't take long for the guys to adjust to it. We have the women's team. The assistant director here with the basketball staff as well has the women's team wear both of those as well. And so it's really not as invasive as they may seem. And we've kind of got to the point where we've created this culture to where the athletes know why they're asked to wear these items and they know the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And we try to present that as in a championship type culture. This is the things that you do in order to optimize your performance. And so once you kind of ingrain that mindset, then there's typically not too much kickback with those wearables.
0: Well, it seems like you're collecting a lot of data. How many people or how many strength coaches, how much staff do you have to be able to mine this data and to be able to make sense out of it?
1: Yeah, that's great. And that was one of the reasons that Oklahoma was so appealing for me is because here on my staff, we have anywhere between four, and six members for basketball. And so that includes full-time positions, uh, graduate assistants, and then we have undergraduate assistants that are tied into our health and exercise science program here on campus. And so we typically, when I take a student intern, they're involved with the university, but they have that foundational level of understanding in health and exercise science. So that if we're talking about substrate utilization or applying force in different vectors, like they have an understanding of what that means from the science and from the schooling that they're getting in conjunction with that. And so we often have, like I said, between four and six members on our team at any time. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to utilize the systems that we have because it really takes a whole team to be able to get through that data, to be able to find something that's actionable from it. In addition to that, I think it's really important that as teams are starting up or if if it's a team with a a small budget or that, that doesn't have the manpower that we have, that makes the vetting process for a lot of these devices so critical because with all the lights and flashy buttons and Instagram posts that you're seeing that all these people are using these, these items, many of them aren't validated. and Many of them aren't validated with a criterion measure, so meaning that they say they do something, but that hasn't been backed up against something that is the gold standard, if you will. And so when we go through the vetting process, we ask a lot of these questions of if they have substantial literature or substantial documentation showing that it actually is giving the information that it claims it is. And so if you go through that process and you're strict with your vetting process, you can weed out a lot of the imitations that say they're doing something and it might appear as they are, but deep down underneath it, they might not be. So I think that that's critical to it. But I think too, yeah, like you had mentioned, without having a staff like that, we wouldn't be able to investigate some of the things that we want to.
0: So now you have things like the catapult and first beat to be able to measure physiological or mechanical stress. You have all this information, but it seems difficult because basketball is a team sport. And so now how are we going to be able to make these adjustments on the court? Are the coaches bought into this or is it you basically just making the adjustments in the weight room?
1: Yes, um, that's a huge part of it. Right now, I'm fortunate that our coaching staff is very integrated with what we're doing. And so, you know, it's never a message of you can't do this, or you have to change that. It's always a message of suggestion of what do you need to get done from practice? Or what do you need to get done from today's session? And I'll find a way to try to make that happen by adjusting things either on the back end in the weight room, like you mentioned, or just adjusting different segments. So if it's something as simple as We need to reduce the load that our athletes are exposed to. It can be a simple conversation of coach, instead of doing this drill for a certain duration, let's limit that duration five minutes less. Or I know that this is the skill set that you want to work on. What are the drills that would help you work on that? Can we pick this one? Because it has a load associated with it based upon what we've logged in the past. We know that this typically looks like this or this drill typically has certain signatures. Then we can plug and play with different drills. So we're not telling the coaches you can't do something. We're asking them what they need to get done, um, and we're offering suggestions to optimize the performance of the athletes on the back end. And then also, too, there's going to be times where the skill sport supersedes or the head coach has rationale of doing things that might not always add up to optimal physical preparation, right? Right. It could be something that's tactical or skill-oriented from basketball that would supersede them being fatigued or them kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. And so you always would divert to that kind of line of thinking of, if that's the case, then we'll just adjust elsewhere. So we'll adjust in the weight room, we'll adjust with our energy system development training sessions, or we'll we'll adjust on the back end or on the front end with things that we have a little bit more control over. But we're pretty fortunate. Our staff is on board with the process that we're employing. And, and it's just a constant communication. A lot of that is using the language that they use and, and knowing the game, if you will, being a former athlete and, and kind of speaking the same language and understanding the concepts and the drills and the things that they're trying to get out of the practice of the training session. And then being able to use that vernacular when you're trying to adjust accordingly.
0: Yeah, we all know you don't have to be a phenomenal basketball player to be a great basketball strength coach. But that has to be one of the added benefits of your playing career is being able to know the movements, know the game, understand it on a deeper level. So when you're talking about that skill or tactical piece, you'd be able to add stuff to the conversation. I mean, coaches got to love that.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, to be honest with you, I think that it is it's a huge advantage. I used to think it was a greater advantage when it you know, when I was young and naive, maybe I thought that it was a greater advantage into, I played this game, therefore I know how to train athletes. And I think that that's a slippery slope because I know a lot of guys I played with, but I wouldn't maybe trust them to train my athletes. So just because you have a prerequisite of playing the game, I'm not sure that that then makes you qualified to be able to prescribe. However, like you mentioned, I do think it does provide you the insight to be able to improve your communication skills, improve your relationships with the coaches and the players to then employ the tactics that you've learned throughout the years from your educational process and from your practical setting to be able to employ those things. So I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great asset to be able to, to have that experience in that past, but you know, it's, it's something as similar as is just because you had surgery once doesn't mean you're, you're the doctor that should be doing it, right? And so I think about that from training. I, I think it, it's, it's great, but I would be hesitant if that was the only qualification that you had of, of being a former player. But um, without a doubt, knowing that language, speaking that language, talking the talk, um, and building relationships accordingly for sure helps. is, is worth its weight in gold when, when you're trying to incorporate things or implement new ideas.
0: I wanna get back to the force plates. Can you tell me a little bit about how are you utilizing them and some of the testing measures that you're doing?
1: Currently, we'll use those force plates more as a neuromuscular readiness assessment. So what that means is we'll bring in the athletes and so we can use them for two different things. The weekly kind of assessment, what we're hoping to find out is trying to illuminate changes in fatigue or changes in or decrements in their performance prior to their training session. So we'll have the athletes come in and we'll have them use the force plates and the force plates that we use the force decks give us about 50 different metrics and so we've actually spent the last few years and my assistant dr aaron heishman just finished his phd and and a lot of his research is in is with using these force plates and, and trying to figure out which one of those 50 metrics we find most valuable for our population in essentially telling us valuable things because that goes back again to mining the data You could be sifting through a lot and not get anything that's actionable out of it. And so with his help, we've kind of been able to pinpoint a few metrics maybe that we think that are valuable to take a look at each time our athletes hop on the force plates. And so we'll use that as kind of an assessment of fatigue throughout the course of the year and also to have a running baseline for our athletes in case something catastrophic happens and we have to have a return to play protocol implemented. Then we have these baselines formulated throughout the course of the year. In addition to that, we also use them just for gross performance improvements. So instead of doing the vertex and, and testing vertical jump that way, we'll just use the force plates and, and see gross changes in, in performance throughout the course of the summer or throughout the course of a training block to be able to understand if what we prescribed actually produced the outcomes that we wanted. So we'll use it kind of twofold, more of a readiness assessment, but then also, too, to see gross changes over time for these athletes.
0: For the ready assessment piece, are you doing it every day? Is it right at the start of
1: practice? Is it at the start of weights, the end of weights? How are you being consistent with that? For the research papers that we published, we try to have a really controlled environment for that. During the season, we try to continue that kind of controlled environment. But as you can imagine, the practical setting doesn't always lend to that. But we always test our athletes prior to their training session with us. We do it once a week, typically, any more than that. And there could be a monotony of testing, and then you might not get great numbers, and there might be kind of a boredom effect, or there might be not a, a great willingness to want to participate and give full effort. And so we only do it once a week. We feel like that's that's enough frequency to give us good information, but not too much to where we're asking too much of the athlete. And so we'll we'll do that once a week. It's prior to our training session. So the way we have our training area set up is the athletes come in, and each one, we get hands on each one of the athletes. So we'll have all of their soft tissue, all of their movement prep all of their activation, all of that will take place prior to their training session. It takes about 30 minutes. It And a lot of that is self-directed. So they know what they've done in the past and they've been prescribed exercise now. And so there's a, a minute or two where we are with each athlete, hands-on at each athlete between our staff or the medical staff. And then they'll go through all of their preparatory work and then they'll go right to the force plate and test prior to their training session. And then they'll go to their training session and then that's typically throughout the mornings, and we space it out so that we have smaller blocks and smaller groups so that we can have a one-on-one or a one-to-two coach-to-athlete ratio so that nobody's kind of falling through the cracks. And then they'll come back for their practice in the afternoon. So that assessment is typically always at the same time for each athlete, and it's always in the late to mid-morning time block so that we can pretty much know that the consistency and time of day, because there's been some, also some research that time of day would significantly affect their performance metrics. And so, we want to make sure that we're trying to eliminate all the confounding variables when we're trying to be pretty systematic about our approach.
0: So, now they finish that piece of it and they go into the weight room. Are you doing any kind of tracking with power development or
1: velocity training? Yeah, so we have a Elite Form in our racks, and that essentially is a camera system that maps the bar and it'll track the bar speed. And so, you enter in the weight that's being used, and then you can see in meters per second essentially how well the athlete completes that work. We do use that system. We use it a bit sparingly. We mostly just use it for our third and fourth years. If we have a great athlete who's well-developed and the technical skill in the weight room is there, then it might happen a little bit earlier than that. But we typically aren't going to worry about manipulating velocities with the bar until we have such a robust foundation that they can handle those velocities. And so a lot of the stuff that we'll do with our incoming freshmen, our first years, our second years, is we won't worry about velocity-based training with the barbell. We'll get a lot of that through our plyometric preparation and through our uh, landing sequences to teach them how to move properly before we add any kind of velocity or force to it. In doing that, we can create well-rounded athletes from the bottom up versus putting a Ferrari engine in a Volkswagen and having the wheels fall off. And so we want to make sure that we've completed the whole package and take all the juice worth the squeeze at the foundational level before we worry about the velocity portion because the return on that could be significant but it's not going to be as significant as when you have an underdeveloped athlete is focusing on foundational level efforts
0: and then what about body composition are you doing anything to be able to track that
1: we do we have a few different items that we've done and we've actually taken a look and try to get a better understanding of comparing some of those as well and we currently use dexa So we have a DEXA machine at the performance center that we operate out of for basketball. And so we have a DEXA. uh, We use a New Orleans DEXA. That's the DEXA. It's the large model, so we can fit all of our athletes up to seven, six, I think. Um, It's 90 inches, I believe. So that provides us feedback, not only on soft tissues, so muscles, fat masses, um, and tendons and stuff, but it also gives us bone density as well. So That device we'll use periodically throughout the year to see changes in in body composition. Uh, We also have a bod pod that we have on campus as well, and so we can use that one a little bit more regularly just based upon the standards that we have at the university on how many times we can use the DEXA. And That's not from a safety issue with the DEXA machine, but that's more from a physician's point of view because we have a physician look at each one of those scans just to make sure there's nothing abnormal about them. And so we use the DEXA when we're trying to use that gold standard measurement for changes in athlete composition. And then if there's a specific need or a requirement or a high focus athlete, then we can use the bod pod a little bit more regularly. But we have those two metrics to compare to each other to understand that they're going to give us different readings and they're going to give us different values. But us comparing those two and knowing at the very beginning what those look like in comparison then we can look at what that looks like extrapolated out as we look over time or longitudinally
0: all right so that's a lot of stuff you threw at us tell me about some of the cons of having all this data we know the benefits it's going to give you a ton of information what are some of the downsides that we might not think about
1: i think the first downside is probably the obvious and, and, and the amount of time and manpower that it takes and if you're going to spend that time and manpower and you're not gonna get actionable information, or the information that you think is important is flawed based upon the system that you're using, then you're then you're gonna be spinning your wheels and you're gonna be prescribing and doing things that aren't statistically significant based upon what the system's telling you, or the worthwhile change is gonna be so small that all that effort you spent, if you just spent that in improving your training, that you might have more juice first to squeeze in that area. And so I think that's the biggest thing that I can say is if you get lost in the information that you're collecting or if you don't have the ability to really vet what companies you're using and what, what technology you're using, it could be a waste of your time, quite frankly, because you, you might not be getting the outcomes that you think you're getting. There's that piece. It's expensive as all get out. And so that's another thing is you got to be really smart about where you use your resources at, a, at many places. And, and so maybe that might not be where the funds need to go. If you need to buy weight room equipment and you need to have a good training program, having dumbbells or having kettlebells would far supersede having catapult and not really maybe knowing what you're looking at. And so I think that we have now gotten to the point where the things that we're using are starting to give us return on our investment. And that's not always the case at some places. And so I would just use heavy caution and and make sure that you've optimize the building blocks and the lower levels of, of your training program before you you go down a rabbit hole and try and chase something without having those other things really really in a good order
0: okay I got three scenarios I want to run past you okay you have a strength coach with a limited budget but has enough money for one piece of technology what's the one thing that a strength coach that's working with the basketball team should invest in
1: in my opinion And we're talking just technology. They've got the training equipment in place. I think my one piece that I would suggest probably is a heart rate monitor. And I say that because it's cheap, fairly cheap. And you can use it for for multiple different things, depending on what your question is. And so if you wanted to use the heart rate monitor, we use ours for prescribing tempos for all of their conditioning and all of their energy system development. So we'll use it for prescribing workloads. We'll use it as assessments of fatigue. We'll use it for assessments of recovery and how well they're doing um, with the training stimulus or the day after or the day after a game or the day after a weekend at a tournament. We'll use it during practice to see live feedback on how our athletes are doing. And so I think you can even use it during a strength training session and find an optimal time, for, time course for recovery in order to have a maximal bout effort during the training session. Even if it's uh, anaerobic type work, you're still going to be able to get a better understanding of what that physiological workload looks like for each person. And so I think cost and value that you get... I would probably suggest just a, a simple heart rate monitor to be able to better understand the kind of stressors that our athletes are accruing throughout the course of their training and throughout the course of their day even. Um, I think a lot of times we also forget about the social stimulus that these athletes are under, the uh, the sports stimulus that they're under, the academic stimulus that they're under, let alone just the training session when they're with us for an hour or two hours a day. And so that heart rate monitor might help you get a better understanding of the workload and the stressors that they're exposed to throughout the day or throughout the course of the week, then uh, maybe something else would.
0: Okay. Scenario number two. Yep. If you're a high school strength coach with no budget and you want to be able to monitor something. What is something that that would be worthwhile for them to track that doesn't cost any money?
1: If you're a high school strength conditioning coach or even quite frankly, Mike, there's universities that don't have extensive budgets. I mean, I think about the university that I played at. We didn't have any money. I mean, oftentimes the equipment came from the rec center after it was done being used. So it's not It's not even just high schools, but that, I mean, with your scenario, I think this could be applicable to many different levels. Um, but I would say the biggest thing, if you can't buy anything or if you have no piece of technology is just use subjectivity to get a little bit better idea about what's going on with the basketball side of things and with the practice or or with the training in the weight room. And by that I mean you could you could do something simple like an RPE and get an understanding of the athlete's perceived exertion during those sessions and so there's been plenty of literature out there that has shown that RPE runs right alongside of actual physiological output. So if you see somebody on a heart rate monitor on some sort of other assessment and you ask them how they're doing and their heart rate's through the roof, they're probably gonna say that it's not going too well. right? And so just asking the athlete their perception of the training session and then using duration of that training session could give you a good idea of how hard that workload was. I think another thing to think about too is, is if you're a strength coach, in a high school level or low level college, getting a perception of how hard that work was not only from the players, but from the coaching staff is pretty vital to getting an understanding of what's going on because oftentimes coaches think things are either easier or harder and they perceive it differently than the athletes who are actually going through it do. And so getting a snapshot of both the athlete and the coach and their perception on how hard that was for different training sessions or different uh, drills really will help you as a performance coach get a better understanding of what they're exposed to throughout their day. In addition to that, I think just getting subjective feedback would be good, but I think just getting a feel for what you as a practitioner, you as a strength coach, think about getting your subjective viewpoint about the the training or the practice that just happened. So something as simple as taking a journal or, or a notepad or a computer out to practice with you and writing down the drills, writing down how intense you thought they were, writing down the duration and start to log tendencies that that coaching staff might have or practices might have or tendencies that the athletes might have during your training session. You know, that's not always easy, especially if you're in the weight room working with guys, but just notes on the session and notes on, on how things go. Oftentimes you can go back and start to say, okay, during this time of year or during, February, this is what it typically looked like based upon what I saw all last year. And so you can start to get an understanding of what these athletes are going through subjectively. And, and although that, that might be a little bit off, it's gonna provide you at least a starting point to better understanding, getting feedback from what they're going through.
0: That's a great point. For a lot of years at Gonzaga, we didn't have a budget either. And I did a simple RPE scale that I do with my basketball players. And they just had four simple things they filled out. How many hours of sleep they got last night? How many meals they ate yesterday? Mm -hmm. On a scale of one to five, their physical fatigue. And on a scale of one to five, their mental stress. Four questions literally took them 10 seconds to fill out. They just keep it in the locker room. And what I really loved was they were great conversation starters. First off, they were insights into how people were feeling that they might not tell me. They might not have mentioned that they got four hours of sleep last night because they were sick. Or they might not mention that. They are just physically beat up. They might come in and be ready to work. And so I think it just improved communication. I was able to go up to someone and say, hey, how are you feeling? You said that you were pretty stressed. Oh, yeah, I have this big test. And those are things that coaches we need to know about, but the players aren't always going to think to tell us. So I think that's a great point. This is at a major university like Gonzaga. We didn't have any wearables. We didn't have any fancy technology. We had a simple piece of paper in the locker room, and I would just go check it and just create conversations at the start of warm-up in the weight room.
1: Yeah, and I think that's great. We still, to this day, will use subjective questionnaires like that, even at, even here, because it is such a good way to couple that subjective piece with the objective data that we're getting. And again, maybe, you know, it might be something where all of the data that we're getting from these wearables are telling that this session should be hard, but the athlete is telling us this is easy. So maybe their fitness level is higher than we thought it was, and we can change what we're prescribing. So if you just depend upon the wearables and not upon the perception from the athlete or understanding those physiological kind of values as well as the mechanical values you probably be missing a big big chunk of the piece.
0: All right, last question. Now, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. We have a high school player that really wants to make it to the next level. Is there any technology that you'd invest in for them, whether it's basketball specific or just general well-being, uh, anything that you'd spend your money on for your daughters?
1: I probably would couple that again with heart rate, a heart rate monitor, or, or maybe even some of the garments or watches or Apple watches kind of do a decent job at that at this day and age. But, you know, for the same price of a new pair of shoes, you can get a heart rate monitor and then you can really better affect your aerobic capacity. And I think a lot of times understanding that and manipulating that and then using that to your advantage, even if your sport is not aerobic, but using that to a, your advantage to better facilitate those anaerobic chunks in your training. And so I think that that would be a piece, you know, there's so many gimmicks out there and there's so many pieces that are just a flash in the pan and and would be a waste of money. And I think that the heart rate monitor would be a really good investment. Similar to the, the rationale for a limited budget, I think for a parent or for a young athlete or high school athlete or a grade school athlete, being simple with their training is going to be the most important if they just do the basics really well, they're going to be less susceptible to have something wrong or dysfunctional when we get them and not taking the time to have to fix them. will just improve their trajectory when we put them into a program to improve their performance. So I would stick with simplicity and that's kind of why I say a heart rate monitor. You can get items that would track your jumps or track your vertical or give you feedback on certain things. And, and, I think all of that is kind of surface level when it comes to actually being able to affect what your, your kid is doing and, and understanding that, like you had just mentioned, that there's stressors throughout life that are extend way beyond the sport. And I think if you have the subjective along with the physiological understanding of what's going on in their body right now, that would then provide you insight into maybe we shouldn't go to the soccer field and train the girls today, or maybe we shouldn't go out and, and do plyos in the backyard because... They're smoked. They're they're exhausted. They got nothing left. And so I think just being super simple and using broad brushstrokes at that age is so pivotal in creating a robust athlete for the future.
0: Bryce, this was so helpful for me, just as a strength coach, learning what you're doing at Oklahoma is just really valuable. So thank you so much for taking the time. Where can our listeners find out more about you?
1: I don't have a Twitter. I'm I'm, might be an anomaly right now because I know that's the day and age, but. I'm I'm not all over social media, but um, I've got stuff on our OU website, but they can easily, my email's on there as well. And so if there's questions or follow-ups, they can feel free to email me. That's probably the best way to kind of just reach out or get in contact.
0: I love finding people that aren't on social media. I'm so jealous. (laughs) You probably just are totally stress-free. And when you're with your family, you're not thinking about how many likes you're getting. You're probably just present in the moment. I like that. Yeah,
1: all my young employees, the guys that work for me all have that. And so they hold it down pretty well for us. And then it just alleviates one other stressor from from, uh, what I got going.
0: Now that's a wrap on episode 39. And I hope you'll join me next week for another solo session. This month, I've spoken at two different conferences, the International Basketball Strength and Conditioning Conference, and the High Performance Basketball Symposium. Both of my presentations were on developing a unique leadership system for your own program. After the talks, most of the questions I received revolved around how to actually teach leadership. So next episode, I'm gonna dig deep into the specifics of how I coach the nine leadership traits in our system. I'll start out with arguably the most important trait, gratitude and I'll share the stories, actions, and sticky statements that help our players know what to think, say, and do to be grateful. Until then, I have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you took the time to rate and subscribe to it. The more people that rate and subscribe, the better chance it has to be discovered. And to all you who are committed, we'll earn your X.